This is the Memoir 44 podcast. It's for fans of the Days of Wonder game called Memoir 44. This podcast home on the web is at memoir44podcast.blogspot.com. Get in touch by sending an email to memoir44podcast at gmail.com. Welcome to the fourth episode of the Memoir 44 podcast. Today I'll be looking at the fourth scenario in the base game, which is called Point du Hoc. Back on what I believe was the 60th anniversary of the D-Day landings, the President made a rather moving speech while visiting Point du Hoc. We're here to mark that day in history when the Allied armies joined in battle to reclaim this continent to liberty. For four long years, much of Europe had been under a terrible shadow. Free nations had fallen. Jews cried out in the camps. Millions cried out for liberation. Europe was enslaved and the world prayed for its rescue. Here in Normandy, the rescue began. Here the Allies stood and fought against tyranny in a giant undertaking unparalleled in human history. We stand on a lonely, windswept point on the northern shore of France. The air is soft, but 40 years ago at this moment, the air was dense with smoke and the cries of men, and the air was filled with the crack of rifle fire and the roar of cannon. At dawn on the morning of the 6th of June, 1944, 225 rangers jumped off the British landing craft and ran to the bottom of these cliffs. Their mission was one of the most difficult and daring of the invasion, to climb these sheer and desolate cliffs and take out the enemy guns. The Allies had been told that some of the mightiest of these guns were here, and they would be trained on the beaches to stop the Allied advance. The Rangers looked up and saw the enemy soldiers at the edge of the cliffs shooting down at them with machine guns and throwing grenades, and the American Rangers began to climb. They shot rope ladders over the face of these cliffs and began to pull themselves up. When one ranger fell, another would take his place. When one rope was cut, a ranger would grab another and begin his climb again. They climbed, shot back, and held their footing. Soon, one by one, the rangers pulled themselves over the top. And in seizing the firm land at the top of these cliffs, they began to seize back the continent of Europe. 225 came here. After two days of fighting, only 90 could still bear arms. Behind me is a memorial that symbolizes the ranger daggers that were thrust into the top of these cliffs. And before me are the men who put them there. These are the boys of Puente Hope. These are the men who took the cliffs. These are the champions who helped free a continent. And these are the heroes who helped end a war. The Ranger Battalion that was to attack Point Du Hoc was commanded by Lieutenant Colonel James Earl Rudder. The plan called for three companies of Rangers to be landed by sea at the foot of the cliffs to scale them using ropes, ladders and grapnels while under enemy fire, and engage the enemy at the top of the cliff. This was to be carried out before the main D-Day landings. 
the rangers trained for the cliff assault on the Isle of Wight under the direction of British commandos. Major Cleveland A. Lytle was to command three companies of the 2nd Ranger Battalion in the assault on Point de Hoc. During a briefing, he heard that the three French sources reported the guns thought to be there had been removed. Lytle became quite vocal that the assault would be unnecessary and suicidal, and was relieved of his command at the last minute by Provisional Ranger Force Commander Rudder. Rudder felt that Lytle could not convincingly lead a force with a mission that he did not believe in. Lytle was later transferred to the 90th Infantry Division, where he was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross. The following extract is taken from a book called The Victors, Eisenhower and His Boys, The Men of World War II, by Stephen Ambrose. I'll put a link to that into the show notes, so that you can find and buy that book from Amazon if you so wish. The beach at Point du Hoc was only ten metres in width, as the flotilla approached, and shrinking rapidly as the tide was coming in. At high tide there would be virtually no beach at all. There was no sand, only shingle. The bombardment from the air and sea had brought huge chunks of the clay soil from the point, tumbling down, making the rock slippery, but also providing an eight-metre build-up at the base of the cliff that gave the rangers something of a head start in climbing the forty-metre cliff. The rangers had a number of ingenious devices to help them get to the top. One was a 25-metre extension ladder mounted in the DUKWs, provided by the London Fire Department. But one DUKW was already sunk, and the other three could not get a footing on the shingle, which was covered with wet clay and thus rather like greased ball bearings. Only one ladder was extended. Sergeant William Stevenson climbed to the top to fire his machine gun. He was swaying back and forth like a metronome, German tracers whipping about him. Lieutenant Elmer Dutch Vermeer described the scene. The ladder was swaying at about 45 degree angle, both ways. Stevenson would fire a short burst as he passed over the cliff at the top of the arch. But the DUKW floundered so badly that they had to bring the fire ladder back down. The basic method of climbing was by rope. Each LCA carried three pairs of rocket guns firing steel grapnels which pulled up plain three-quarter inch ropes, toggle ropes or rope ladders. The rockets were fired just before touchdown. Grapnels with attached ropes were an ancient technique for scaling a wall or a cliff, tried and proven. But in this case the ropes had been soaked by the spray and in many cases were too heavy. The rangers watched with sinking hearts as the grapnels arched towards the cliff only to fall short from the weight of the ropes. Still at least one grapnel and rope from each LCA made it, and the grapnels grabbed the earth, and the dangling ropes provided a way to climb the cliff. To get to the ropes, the rangers had to disembark and cross the narrow strip of beach to the base of the cliff. To get there, they had two problems to overcome. The first was a German machine gun on the ranger's left flank, firing across the beach. It killed or wounded fifteen men as it swept bullets back and forth across the beach. Colonel Rudder was one of the first to make it to the beach. With him was Colonel Travis Trevor, a British commando who had assisted in the training of the rangers. He began walking the beach, giving encouragement. Rudder described him as a great big six feet four inches black-haired son of a gun, one of those staunch Britishers. Lieutenant Vermeer yelled at him, how in the world can you do that when you're being fired at? I take two short steps and three long ones, Trevor replied, and they always miss me. 
Just then a bullet hit him in the helmet and drove him to the ground. He got up, shook his fist at the machine gunner, hollering, You dirty son of a bitch! After that, Vermeer noted, he crawled around like the rest of us. Germans on the top managed to cut two or three of the ropes, while others tossed grenades over the cliff. But barmen at the base and machine gun fire kept most of them back from the edge. They had not anticipated an attack from the sea, so their defensive positions were inland. In addition, the rangers had tied pieces of fuse to the grapnels and lit them just before firing the rockets. The burning fuses made the Germans think that the grapnels were some kind of weapon about to explode, and that kept some of them away. Within five minutes, rangers were at the top of the cliff, and the fight was almost over. So that's all for the history. Now it's time to hand over to Jack. My name is Jack Dritza. This is not a historical reenactment, but a dramatization of a scenario from the Memoir 44 board game. For this episode, the fourth scenario of the base game Point to Hawk was played. Fifteen units are in the scenario, and randomly, the fifth unit was selected. This is a U.S. Rangers unit in the center of the board. This is their story. When I started training as a second ranger, I didn't know what it really meant to be a ranger. After months of training, I can tell you, we could take on anything. I was a football star back at home, and I foolishly thought I was in shape. Ranger training proved me wrong. I never trained that hard for football, but now I can say I was fitter than I ever thought possible. We were trained to move fast, attack with precision, and overcome anything. Our mission was to climb the cliffs of Point de Hoc and destroy the large guns that could wipe out our troops landing on the beaches. If we could not get to those guns, our guys on the beach were going to have a most unpleasant welcome. Our job was to give them a fighting chance. I now sat in my landing craft, moving quickly towards the cliffs that loomed in front of us. As the cliffs grew closer and closer, many of us were already sizing up the climb. We were picking out where we should start our climb and pointing out to each other the best places to maybe find some cover. The Sarge was giving orders and focusing our efforts. The boat hit the beach and the Sarge screamed at us to move out. My group moved straight forward as the troops to my right moved to attack the bunker on the point. They fired their rifles at the bunker's opening, hoping to suppress whoever was inside. Machine guns erupted from the bunker, supported by mortars. There was little to no cover for our troops approaching, and several were cut down very quickly. We reached our climb and climbed very quickly. Before we knew it, we were the first troops to reach the top of the cliff. At the top of the cliff, we tried to move forward, we all spotted the sandbags at the same time. We fired our weapons from the hip and more of an instinctive snap fire than well-placed shots that we were trained to do. We were hoping to force the Germans to put their heads down, but our shots were scattered and very ineffective. The Germans behind the sandbags opened up with their machine gun. They had been waiting for us and we scrambled back to the cliffs to find some cover. We took some hits along the way but now we knew where the Germans were. Back at the cliffs, we could see more troops climbing up. We were not alone anymore. 
as more troops reached us. We knew we had to push forward. We moved out and attacked the sandbags again. This time we knew where the sandbags were and our shots were on target. Several Germans fell as we pushed forward. The remaining Germans behind the sandbags fired on us as we passed forward. We drew the fire as the troops behind us dispatched the remaining Germans. All the troops started to sweep towards the bunker on the point. We now had momentum and we were determined to win the day and find those guns. Shells arced overhead. I don't remember hearing the blast, but I do remember tumbling in the air. I came to rest on my back with the wind knocked out of me. I lay motionless wondering how hurt I was. My day was done as my vision began to fade. My last vision was of my unit pressing forward and pressing on. Find the guns, guys. Find the guns. Let's take a look at how the board is set up for Scenario 4, which is the Point du Hoc scenario. This is a beach landing scenario, so obviously we're using the beach board. The main feature on here is that there is a line of hills running from east to west right across the board, and on the eastern side there's a hill-based salient pointing out towards the sea. The special rules that apply to these hills are that on the seaward side they're actually cliffs, and you have to use two movement points to get up them. So you've got a very sturdy, strong barrier there that's going to slow down any troops that are trying to move inland. On the very point of that hilly salient, there is a bunker with a unit in there. And behind this line of hills, which only count as hills from the other side, there are only five more units for the Axis players. Three of those, one of which is artillery, are all in bunkers, and these are two hexes behind the hills. There are also two more units which are fairly close to the bunkers that are behind sandbags. And all three of these sections have barbed wire protecting them as well. There are two victory point hexes that are at the back of the board. These are in the right hand section and they're effectively behind that hilly salient. And each one of them has a victory medal on it. So to summarise the axis positions. In the left hand section you have one unit that's sitting in a bunker. You also have another unit that's right on the line between the left and middle sections that's in sandbags. You have two more infantry units in the middle section, one in sandbags, one in a bunker. And on the right-hand hedge, you have one infantry unit that's in the bunker that's on the point of that salient. And you have one artillery unit in a bunker that's just behind the line of hills on the right-hand side. Opposing these six Axis Forces units, we have nine Allied units, all infantry, and in fact, they're all special forces. They're all rangers. So that means they can move two spaces and attack, or move three spaces. Most of them start out on the water's edge, but there is one that's just on the beach, and there are two that are in the back edge of the water. A very interesting fact with regards to their deployment is that they're all in the left and centre sections. You don't start the game with any units at all in the right-hand section. So you have here two unbalanced forces for two different reasons. Namely, the Axis player is vastly outnumbered, and that the Allied player only starts in two of the three areas. This makes the whole thing very interesting. What you lack in scenario terrain, or interesting terrain that you can fight over, is made up for by the fact that you've got unbalanced forces on the two different sides, and a fairly bad distribution of troops if you're the Allied player. 
So let's take a quick look at the tactical situation here. With the Allied forces starting in the water and on the beach, they're in a very slow position. Although they are units that can move with extra movement points, they're restricted by being in the water and being on the beach, and by the fact that the cliffs in front of them mean they're going to have to stop at the bottom of the cliffs and then spend an entire turn just getting to the top of those cliffs. Also, most of the Axis forces are actually in bunkers, but most of these are actually behind the hills. There are actually only two units for the Axis player that can stay in their fortification and attack the Allied units. The first one of these is the infantry that are positioned in the bunker on the hilly salient. They can take pot shots at the Allies, but of course the Allies aren't in their section. The Allies are in the centre section, and this bunker is in the right-hand section. The other unit is the artillery unit that's behind the line of hills on the right-hand section. The gun has quite a long range, but it is limited in its usefulness, because most of the Allied units aren't in the same section of it, so it's usually firing a, a reduced number of dice. If you're playing the Axis forces in this scenario, what I would recommend you do is that you bring your forces forwards and climb onto those hills as soon as you can, so that you can take pot shots as, at the Allied forces as they come up the beach and as they have to wait at the bottom of the hills. Then you can fall back on your bunkers, and at that point you're in a better, heavily defended position to take on any Allied units that do make it over the hills okay. This will mean that you lose the advantages of the defensive position of those sandbags because you're going to leave those sandbagged hexes and they get removed from the board. But if you don't do this, what happens is the Allied forces will swarm over the wall all along its length and then your defensive position isn't worth the sandbags it's made of effectively because you get surrounded very quickly. What you need to do is get forward, get onto that hill, try and take out some Allied units before you fall back on your defensive positions. And obviously, if you've got a card you can play that will put your units into sandbags at that point, it might well be worth doing. In the centre section, you start with one unit that's in the bunker and another unit that's behind that in sandbags. What I recommend you do is get that unit out of the bunker, advance that up to the hills, start shooting, and the unit that's behind that in the sandbags move that forward and into the bunker. Then the other unit can fall back as appropriate. Don't bring the unit that's on the salient out of its bunker. It's a very good position and in fact it can shoot over into the middle section and take some pot shots at passing ranger units. The artillery obviously isn't going to move because it's starting in a bunker. And again you want to try and reserve a couple of cards that mean you can activate those guns because the two victory medal spaces are on that side of the board. So if any allied units are heading towards those use your gun cards to try and take them out and stop them getting those free victory points. Now what about the other side of the coin? What do I suggest for the Allies? Well, you obviously need to get out of the water. You need to get up the beach and you need to get up on top of that hill. Try and save any of your good cards for this move. If you can get a move three in one area, then save that until you get to the bottom of the hill line so that you can bring three units at once up over the top of that cliff. If you find you've only got rubbish cards and you can only bring one of them over at a time, you'll find the Axis forces concentrating their fire on that one unit and it'll get picked off very quickly. You need to spread that fire, and you need to maximise your own firepower as well. If the cards allow, you also need to move a couple of your units, at least from the centre section, into the right-hand section. That gives you better protection against a bad card draw. For instance, if you don't move any into the right, you can practically guarantee the only cards you're going to pull out of the deck are going to be right-section cards. One of the primary targets for units you have in the right-hand section, or in the centre section, 
should be to get up over the hills and get onto those hexes where the medals are. They're very easy to pick up, and you don't even have to stay in those hexes to keep those medals. So I suggest you bypass the bunkers, zoom straight across the board, pick up those medals, and then come back and attack the bunkers as required. Once you've picked up those medals, don't go back for the guns. Just steer clear of them. They've got barbed wire protecting them, and they're very powerful once you get up close. I suggest you, once you've got those medals, you move as many units as you can away from the right-hand side of the board and move them into the centre and into the left and take care of the units there. Only two of them will be in the bunkers, so the other two should be easier to pick off. It's now time to turn to my big book of wartime events to look at things that happened on and around the date of this recording, which is the 6th of March. On the 5th, on the Western Front, the Colmar Pocket is cut in two as the US and French troops link up. On February the 6th, on the Russian Front, Konev crosses the Oder and lays siege to Breslau. Hundreds of thousands of panic-stricken German civilians flee westwards, many into the safe city of Dresden. On February the 7th, in the air war, the RAF night attack on German forces at Cleve and at Goch. Well, that'll do for the big book. And so we come to the end of this, the fourth show. There will be a fifth show, and despite the long break between the third and the fourth shows, I do hope to keep this a regular thing, although it may not be keeping to exact dates. If you want to get in touch with me, you can send an email to memoir44podcast at gmail.com, or you can find me occasionally on Skype. I'm FNH Podcast. There's also a guild for this podcast at Board Game Geek. Anyway, that's all for today. FNH signing off. Continuing NBC's coverage of the invasion news of D-Day, the following program will be interrupted without delay to bring you the latest invasion news. Keep tuned to this station. Bob Hope speaking from a P-38 airfield out here near Van Nuys, California. We look forward to being with these men and doing our regular show here, but of course nobody feels like getting up and being funny on a night like this. But we did want to go through with our plans and visit with these fellas because these are the same kind of boys that are flying those 11,000 planes on our big effort. What's happened during these last few hours, not one of us will ever forget. How could you forget? You sat up all night by the radio and heard the bulletins, the flashes, the voices coming across from England. The commentators, the pilots returning from their greatest of all missions, newsboys yelling in the street, and it seemed that one world was ending and a new world beginning, that history was closing one book and opening a new one. And somehow we knew it had to be a better one. You sat there and dawn began to sneak in, and you thought of the hundreds of thousands of kids you'd seen in camps the past two or three years, the kids who scream and whistle when they hear a gag in a song. And now you could see all of them again in 4,000 ships on the English Channel, tumbling out of thousands of planes over Normandy and the occupied coast, in countless landing barges crashing the Nazi gate and going on through to do the job that's the job of all of us. The sun came up and you sat there looking at that huge black headline, that one great black word with the exclamation point, invasion. The one word that the whole world has waited for, that all of us have worked for. We knew we'd wake up one morning and have to meet it face to face, the word in which America's invested everything these 30 long months. The efforts of millions of Americans building planes and weapons. The shipyards and the men who took the stuff across. Little kids buying war stamps and housewives straining bacon grease. Farmers working around the clock. Millions of young men sweating it out in camps and fighting the battles that paved the way for that headline this morning. 
Now the investment must pay for this generation and all generations to come. And folks, what a wonderful thing it is that no matter the price, the reward will be greater than the sacrifice. We hope that thought can go along with the prayer tonight, the prayer of a whole nation. God bless those kids across the English Channel.